Francis Schaeffer once wrote, In God's sight, there are no little people and no little places. It doesn't matter who you are or what your job title is or how much money you make. What matters is who Christ is and who we are in him. Teaching team member Bob Cargo finishes the series, What Do You Work For? Your Part in a Larger Story, with this message entitled, The Hands and Feet of the Story. Your work is God's work. Thank you for joining us today. Perhaps many of you know we are in the fifth week of a five-week series about the topic of work, something you do all week long and on weekends too probably in one way or another, right? It's called uh, Your Place in a Larger Story. What do you work for? And uh, this topic of work is very much connected to a very basic question of Christianity. And here's the question. Why did Jesus come and why did Jesus die? Why did Jesus come and why did he die? And if your sort of reflex answer to that question, whether you've grown up in the church or not, whether you're now a church attender or not, if your sort of first answer in your mind to that question, why did Jesus come and die, is the answer, he came to save our souls and take us to heaven. Well, I want you to know that a great big reason for this whole series is to help all of us stop thinking that way. That sounds weird for a preacher to say, right? But the central answer to that question really is not to save our souls and take us to heaven. Now, don't misunderstand me. We do have souls. Jesus did die for us, and there is such a place as heaven. But that's not the central answer. Here's the central answer. Jesus came and he died to restore our identity and our authority as his image bearers so that we can partner with him in the restoration of all things. Now that's a mouthful, so let me say it again. He came and he died to restore our identity and authority as his image bearers so that we can partner with him in the restoration of all things. You see, at its very heart, Christianity is a story of restoration And it's a story that has four parts. You're going to see on the screen a graphic that we've used before. We did a few weeks ago, and we did a few years ago. The biblical Christianity is the story of creation and fall and redemption and consummation. And as that relates to the topic of work, it goes something like this. Part one of the story that we looked at in the series is the story of creation. We are made in God's image. And we are, in a sense, to use a a term from the ancient Middle East, we are his vice regents. Back in that time period, if a king conquered a certain land, he would send out someone who would bear his image. They would literally take a statue of the king or at least drawings of the king and bearing that image of the king, they would go and represent that king and ruling over that geographic area and, and in a sense, um, domineering it for him making sure his will was done there. And in a very real sense, we were made, Adam and Eve was made, and we are made in God's image so that we can represent him in the continued creation and recreation of this earth so that we have dominion over it in his name. And that, my friends, is the essence of your work, and that's why your work has dignity. The second uh, part of the story is the fall. David McNeely so well described what what went on here. Because of the fall, everything got messed up. 
The workers got messed up and the work got messed up and every square inch of the universe got messed up. And as he so well put it, borrowing from Tim Keller's book, Every Good Endeavor, because of the fall, our work can and does become selfish and pointless and fruitless and idolatrous. And isn't it true we all feel caught between the dignity of creation and the pain and the hurt and the disappointment of the fall? For many years, I watched The Office almost every week. After Steve Carell retired, I stopped watching it, but I did catch the very last episode. And in the last episode, the character of Jim Halpert described his work at Dunder Mifflin. And I'm so glad I didn't work at Dunder Mifflin, you know? The key to The Office is to realize that every character is playing a child of a certain age, you know? This one is three, and this one is 12, and that's how they are. But Jim Halpert said about working at Dunder Mifflin, he described his job there as this stupid, wonderful, boring, amazing job. And that's how we all feel, isn't it? It's wonderful and amazing because we were made to work, and it's glorious. And it's stupid and it's boring because of the fall. Part three of the story is the story of redemption. Jesus comes and he makes us redeemed image bearers that we can work for him. And in fact, he redeems all things. And that carries over into chapter four of consummation. And when Jesus comes back, he makes everything right. And as wild as it is, Romans chapter eight says that all of creation, the birds and the rocks and the trees and the flowers and the dirt, this whole earth and all of our solar system and all of the universe, all of the solar systems, everything that was made is groaning for Jesus to come back and make it right. Because it hasn't been right since Adam and Eve sinned. And it's a wild thing to believe. And here's the mind-boggling part of this story. And I grew up in a church where I wasn't taught this. I was an adult before I started to get my head around it. Jesus did not come simply to die for people. He came to die for things. He came not only to save our souls, but to raise and redeem and restore our bodies. And he came to bring restoration to every created bit of matter so that someday it would be everything it was before Adam and Eve sinned. And someday it will be even better in the new Jerusalem. And believe it or not, that is why your work Monday through Friday has meaning. In the story of restoration, we have three roles. We are recipients, we are messengers, and we are participants. We are, first of all, recipients of restoration. He comes to restore us, body, soul, and spirit. Secondly, we are messengers of the story of restoration. Our church is real big about that. If you've never taken Express Your Faith, take it so that you'll know how to be a messenger of the story of restoration. But this series is especially about the idea that we're participants in restoration. And we participate in this restoration of all things, not only in sharing the gospel and discipling people in the way we usually think of through the church, we're also participants in our work, in your work, Monday through Friday. When you go off to your job tomorrow as a teacher or a plumber or a painter or an accountant or a salesperson or a state official or a nurse or a dietitian or a banker or a barber or a musician, you are partnering with God in reweaving the shalom of Eden and giving the people you serve a foretaste of the shalom of the new Jerusalem. That is what your work is all about. And that's what this series has been all about. 
It still doesn't make a lot of sense. We've given you on the second page of this insert called Points to Remember, some books that you can read later. We hope you'll go to the bookstore and get those in the near future and start reading one, at least one of those. Also out in the foyer on the information table, you're going to see a little document from our Live, Work, and Play ministry that talks about all the eight channels of influence, and it connects each channel of influence with one of God's attributes, a great document. Dig into it more deeply. But that's what we've been talking about in these last few weeks. Our message today, and let me ask you to get out this little insert that will help you follow along, called Points to Remember. My message tonight really just has two parts. Part one is about the what and the why of our work. And I've already jumped into the why, and in fact, I've already covered it. I jumped right in and didn't have an introduction. I didn't want to waste any time. So that's the what. The why is what we want to tackle now. And the question is, why in the world, pun intended, why in the world does it matter whether or not you can connect the dots about this big story in your work? And here's the answer to that question. You'll see it on the screen. What we believe and think about what we do is just as important as what we do. Motive matters most. Would you indulge me and read that aloud with me, please? What we believe and think about what we do is just as important as what we do. Motive matters most. That's why you need to connect the dots. You're going to see on the screen a picture of a tree. And this tree illustrates what the Christian life is about. Every tree has a part that you can see above the ground, and it has a root system that you don't see. And this represents that for us in the Christian life, what is seen above the ground are our behaviors and the attitudes that other people can see. But what is below the ground are all the things that only God sees and only we're aware of. The attitudes that keep hidden, that we keep hidden. Our belief system, what we think about what we do, what's going on in our heart about motives and affections. The Bible says that man looks at the appearance, but God looks at the heart. And walking with Christ is important in your work because of what takes place underneath the surface. You see, there could be two people whose trees look exactly alike. What they are doing And the attitude they seem to have seems to be exactly alike. The difference between walking with God in your work or not is going on underground. Yes, it'll make a difference above ground, but it's going on underground. And if you don't get that right, God is saying, eh, doesn't count. Doesn't count. I want you to connect the dots and believe the right things and love the right things and have the right affections and, and put your faith in the right things. It's also important for this reason. It is what is happening below the surface of a tree that brings the nutrients, right? The life of the tree comes from the roots. And my friends, it will be life-giving to you in your work if you will understand and believe with all of your heart this larger story that we're talking about. And when you really believe it, it will transform how you work and why you work and the joy that you have in your work. So let me say it one more time. What we believe and think about what we do is just as important as what we do. Motive matters most. You need to understand this big story. Let's say, let's say, for example, you volunteered to be in a play, and you go to meet with the director of the play, and he or she hands you something to read. Now, do you think the, the director would hand to you merely the name of your character you're going to play and the lines you're supposed to memorize and the actions you're supposed to take in the th- to make during the three scenes that you're in, and that's it? I don't think so. 
The director would hand to you a summary of the plot of the whole play, and he or she would hand you the whole script. Why? Because your part in the play makes no sense if you don't understand the larger story behind it. And the reality is this, this series that we're in right now, perhaps we misnamed it. We, we called it Your Part in a Larger Story. I think perhaps we should have called it Understanding a Larger Story About Work or Connecting the Dots Between Your Work and a Larger Story because of this. Which part you play is an issue of calling. And though I haven't been authorized to say this, I'm hoping in the next 12 to 24 months we can have a whole other series on the issue of calling. That's how you find out your best role, your best play. But the reason we didn't start there is this. The role you play won't make any sense if you don't understand the larger story. And so we start here. That's the what and that's the why, okay? Tonight we're going to spend most of our time talking about the how of our work. The how of our work. We know that we're supposed to do it as unto the Lord. That's to be the attitude and the motive. But what does it look like to do our work as unto the Lord? Tonight we want to look at two passages of Scripture that describe how we go about it. What does it look like? And the first passage is a summary of the second. And both of them tell us that Jesus is our model. The law of God is our guide. And love is the key word. In Mark chapter 12, verses 30 and 31, somebody asked Jesus, which is the greatest commandment? And his answer summarizes all of God's law. This is what he says. The greatest commandment is to love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind and with all your strength. And to love your neighbor as yourself. There is no commandment greater than these. You know, we've already said in this series that work is a way of loving God. What we want to say tonight is your work is also a way of loving your neighbor. A way of loving your neighbor. You see, work is a way of loving your neighbor. Jesus is the model. God's law is our guide. Do you ever think about the model of Jesus as a worker? I recently have begun reading and rereading, rather, The Four Loves by C.S. Lewis. And this was his observation about love. He said, our imitation of God in this life must be an imitation of God incarnate. Our model is the Jesus not only of Calvary or the cross, but the Jesus of the workshop, the roads, the crowds, the interruptions. For this is the divine life operating under human conditions. Did you get that? We imitate the Jesus of the workshop. Have you thought about what Jesus was like in his carpenter's workshop? (laughs) Stop and think about that for a moment. Here he is working with lumber and with raw wood. He's, he's working with nails that were made of iron or, and he's working with leather that came from cattle. And he made the cattle and he made the iron ore and he made the trees that, that became the lumber with which he is working. You know, I think like nobody else who's ever walked the face of the earth, he understood this idea of using these created things with which to bless people. And he loved these things because he made them and he used them redemptively. Imagine Jesus doing his work as a way of loving people. Stop and imagine how Jesus treated the people with whom he interacted. How did he treat his customers? How did he treat his suppliers and his vendors that brought to him the materials that he used? How did he treat uh, his, his employees, if he had employees? How did he treat his competitors? We know this for sure. Jesus was love incarnate, 
And the way he treated all of these people was the definition of love. How did Jesus approach his job with excellence? There's never been a more excellent carpenter than Jesus. When he made a table, it was a good table. When he made a chair, it was an excellent chair. He did everything right. There's never been a man who's worked in a a way more than him that he loved his heavenly father in and through and by his work. He did that perfectly. And for Jesus, his work as a carpenter with calluses on his hands was a way of not only loving his father, it was a way of loving the people of Nazareth and bringing to them a little bit of that taste of shalom, blessing people by the redemptive use of things like wood and iron and leather. This is an amazing thought also to think about. We know that we are saved not only by the death of Jesus, but also by his perfect obedience and holiness. But have you ever thought about this? We have been saved by the perfect obedience and holiness, not only of Jesus, the preacher, for three years. We've been saved by the perfect obedience and holiness of Jesus, who was a carpenter for probably 15 years. That is a huge affirmation of everyday hard work. That in that context, doing that kind of thing, his holiness has saved sinners like you and me. Now, what would it really be like to love like Jesus loved? What would it be like really to love through our work and love and serve those around us through our work? What does that look like? I think it looks like the Ten Commandments. You see this commandment, this commandment of Jesus when he said, love the Lord your God and love your neighbor. That summarizes all of the Ten Commandments. You may not have known this or understood it, but all that we believe as Christians about ethics and morality hang upon the Ten Commandments. If there is a do or a don't of the Christian life, every one of those things can be traced back to at least one of the Ten Commandments, if not more than one. A few weeks ago, I recommended to you to read the Westminster Larger Catechism about the Ten Commandments. There are 30 questions about the Ten Commandments. Let me recommend that again and think about your work as you read it because that will show you how to love people in your work. On the second page of your bulletin, I'll see a, you'll see a summary of the Ten Commandments as they relate to work. We can't go through all of this right now in terms of exhaustively, but a first place to begin is understanding how the law of God shows you how to love other people in your work. Let's go through it as quickly as we can. The first two commandments are these. No other gods and no idols. And that leads us to repent of work as a false savior and Lord, as well as of works, sister idols. You see, everything is thrown off if we turn our work into an idol. If we try to be saved by our work, if we let our work Lord over us, everything gets thrown off if it's our savior or Lord. Yes, work is to be important and we embrace that importance, but we don't let it become our God. We also repent from those idols that we try to get to through our work. Often we try to get to the idol of success through our work, or approval through work, or comfort through our work, or riches through our work. Those far idols are served by the near idol of work. And we repent from making work an idol, and we repent from the idols that we're trying to reach through our work. It's got to start right there. Law number three is this, to honor God's name. When honoring God's name, that means we don't take work that denigrates God or his image bearers. See, it's a huge thing to treat people with respect and love and dignity because they bear the image of God. And treating each other that way comes from this commandment of not taking God's name in vain. Did you know that? 
So that means right away that there are certain kinds of work that are off the table for believers. Any work that denigrates people, any work that brings shame to people, any work that abuses and uses people as if they were objects, it's off the table for Christians. It's not a good endeavor. And it also tells us this, whatever you do in your work, seek to love and honor every person with whom you come in contact. That person is an image bearer of God. You're treating them with love and respect and dignity as you'd want to be treated, whether it's a peer or a boss or an employee or a customer or a vendor. Honor God and his name. Commandment number four is this, six days of work and keep the Sabbath. This is actually a positive command to work diligently. It's a positive command to work hard. Let there never be a case where a follower of Jesus is known to be a slacker. And I'll tell you what, I've heard more than one person in business tell me this testimony, that the worst and laziest and most undisciplined workers in their place are Christians. Let that never be the case. This means you work with excellence. One of the men in our church who owns a company tells his employees, work with excellence and bring the mission to the job, the mission of restoring all things in the name of Christ. Work with excellence, work hard. But this commandment also says that we have boundaries around our work. We don't let it take over our whole lives. So there's six days of work, but there's one day of rest. We guard the time that doesn't belong to our employer. Commandment number five is this, honor your father and mother. You may not know it, but that command is really about respecting all rightful authority in our lives. So how do you obey that commandment at work? Your mom's not at work. Your dad's not at work. But there is rightful authority at work. So therefore, there's a respectful submission to all rightful authority and a fatherly use of authority. One of the people in our church told me that one of the main ways that he feels like he lives Christianly in his work is by refusing to take part in the rumor mill that goes on at work, talking about people and talking them down, and especially talking down the leaders and managers and owners of his company. He says, I guard myself. If I've got an issue upline, I take it directly to them, and I don't enter into that. Why? Because God commands us to have a respectful submission to authority and to have, as I've called it here, a fatherly use of authority. What, I mean by, what do I mean by that? I don't mean be paternalistic to people and talk down to them. I mean... You use your authority in the way that you would for a son or a daughter that you love, for a brother or a sister you love, for an aunt or uncle that you love, and you treat people as whole persons, and you treat them like you'd want a loved family member to be treated. That's what this commandment says. Commandment number six is do not murder. That means that divine love needs to replace murderous hearts and hatred and strife. Am I right that one of the places in your life where you've gotten the most angry is at work? Some of the people you've probably hated most deeply in your life have been people with whom you have worked. It happens. And only God's love can root out bitterness and hatred and envy and anger. Commandment number seven, don't commit adultery. So therefore, choose work that fuels marital fidelity. If your work keeps you on the road 50 weeks a year, Monday through Friday, you may want to think about another job. Because I don't know how to have a good marriage when you're on the road all the time like that. One of the men in our church a few years ago was finding himself working 70 or 80 hours every week. And he prayed until he could find another job so that his marriage wouldn't be compromised. Because that job was keeping him away from his wife. 
This also means having wise boundaries about work relationships. I really wonder these days, what's the leading environment that leads to affairs? Is it Facebook? Is it class reunions? Or is it work? I think there's a competition between the three. But I think the leading environment is still the work environment. It seems like over half the time when I hear of a married person having an affair, it's somebody they know through their work. Wise boundaries about work. Commandment number eight, do not steal. Sure, you don't take the money that belongs to your company, but you don't steal their time. You don't steal their assets also. And this is actually a commandment to work with integrity and to have generosity. If you can be generous with your skills and abilities, if you can be generous with the assets of your company, be generous. Commandment number nine, don't bear false witness. Have truthfulness in all you do, that your word is good. It is your pledge and your bond. There's a judgment of charity that you give to other people if there's a disagreement. And you lean into thinking the best rather than the worst of them. And honesty in your marketing, always representing your goods and your services appropriately. And lastly, commandment number 10 is do not covet. And that's a commandment in a positive way to be content. Be content with the place in life that God has given to you. Yes, if, you're, if you can expand that under God's will, then do it. But do it so that you can be blessed to be a blessing. And if God lets the scope of your influence grow, if you are wildly successful in what you do, then let that drive you to your knees with humility and with trembling prayer to say, Lord, what do I do with all the blessing that you've given to me? How can I bless more people rather than taking it selfishly? And the command also means that you have joyful support of somebody else who is promoted ahead of you. Rather than being envious, you rejoice for them like you would want them to rejoice for you. Now let me ask you this question. Do I think as a preacher that this is easy? The answer is 100% no. It is not at all easy to apply the law of God in your work setting. We're fallen creatures and none of us can do it perfectly and none of us would do it right on any one day. And you face environments that I've never experienced. Though church work is a lot messier than you might think. But I understand, we don't live in the Garden of Eden, and we don't live in the New Jerusalem, and we live in the mess in the middle, right? And the mess in the middle is hard. That's exactly the reason we opened tonight's message with this video. This video says sometimes people who follow Jesus have work environments where faith is squelched. And that's why integrity, as she said, and diligence and excellence is all the more important. And that's why we will partner with people that don't follow Jesus. If those people, like her organization, are pursuing what is good and true and right and restorative, we can partner with them in common grace because they also were made in the image of God and are probably trying to promote human flourishing themselves. You may work in an environment where there's a widening gap between the income of the CEO and the people up top and the ordinary worker, and that grates on you, and it feels like the fall. You may work in an environment where the global economy means that competition is stiffer and profits are thinner, and you're always on the brink of going out of business. You may live in, or rather work in an environment where the bosses instill an environment of fear on purpose, and you hate that fear but it's where you live. You may work in an environment where your boss is mean or thoughtless or selfish or just a well-meaning but a lousy boss. <laughs> that comes with the fall. 
If you're in business, from what I've been told this last week or two by some of my business friends, you are being asked in today's business environment to do more with less. Isn't that right? And you're also expected to do more while being paid less. That's part of our environment. You may be in an environment where long-term doing good for your business is always thrown under the bus in favor of having good-looking quarterly reports. It's all about now. If you're in healthcare, from what I've been told the last week or two, if you work in healthcare, you probably are so tired of paperwork. You are, you, you are filling out paperwork to satisfy the government, to satisfy insurance companies, to satisfy upper management, and you didn't become a healthcare professional to do paperwork. You wanted to care for patients. But all of this is taking you away from that, and it's hard. And if you're an educator, isn't it true in today's world that probably the administrators fear the board, and the board fears the parents, and the parents fear their own children? It's like the inmates are running the asylum, you know? But that's the environment of education, and that's the hard place you live. We live in the mess in the middle. So what's the alternative? Let me give you some examples of applying this law of love, some examples of redemptive love that come from both the followers of Jesus and those that are not following Jesus. Let me give you, first of all, some examples of generosity. Just this very weekend, if I understand the newspaper correctly, Eddie's Attic, a music venue in downtown Decatur, is giving up their profits this weekend to host an event all around the idea that poverty is real and the people of Decatur want to do something about it. And so a host of musicians are giving their talent for free, and Eddie's Attic is giving their venue for free so that all the proceeds will go to Decatur Cooperative Ministries, which works to prevent homelessness in Decatur and in DeKalb County. Just a couple of weeks ago, a salesman who is a member of one of our daughter churches, City Church Eastside, he is a part of the Reliant Technology, and he went about recruiting people from other businesses in Atlanta to join in together in a 5K run to bring funds to help underprivileged families in Atlanta. And he did that not representing his church. He did that representing his business. And he used his salesmanship in the best sense of that word to get these other companies on board. The famous example perhaps of Truett Cathy, the founder and owner of Chick-fil-A and establishing Windshake Camp to help kids who need help and who need a little bit of extra. A lot of examples Randy Schlichting was just telling me one tonight of professionals, whether they're lawyers or doctors or healthcare workers or business people, who give their work and their skills pro bono and as a volunteer to help the poor in their city or to help their, the poor in a third world country. That's a way of being generous with your work and with your skills. Increasingly these days, I'm seeing businesses and churches that are letting their facilities be used for artists so that artists can display and sell their artwork, which is a great way of encouraging the artist in your area because I didn't know this until recently, but most art galleries charge artists so much the artist makes practically nothing on their own art. It could be a building supplier who donates their supplies to Habitat for Humanity. And if you're in a company where employees can expense ministry or rather work meals of lunch or breakfast or dinner, let me encourage you to set the rubrics on that so that meals can be expensed with a 20% tip. Why? Because a 20% tip is a way of helping the working poor, and it's a way of being generous with your business. Is there some way that you, with your work, can be generous, can show grace, 
can promote justice. There's also examples of how to do your work in a way that has integrity and has honesty. One of the members of our church told me about his work in his company. His company manages facilities and buildings for other companies, for healthcare companies. He told me the story how one of his employees realized that they had been late in, paying a pay- in making a payment for one of their clients. And because they were late making that payment, there was going to be a pretty hefty late fee. He said the situation was that their client trusted them so much, they probably could have passed on to their client that late fee, but they saw that as dishonest. So they confessed to their client that they had blown it. They themselves paid the late fee, and they apologized and said, we're going to try to make sure that doesn't happen again. That's honesty. That's integrity. It could be the contractor who realizes that he's bid this project, and now he realizes he's actually going to lose money on it. But rather than cut corners and use inferior products and building materials, rather than cut corners on the way the building is built, he delivers the product that he promised, and he takes it on the chin. And he promises himself that next time he's going to sharpen his pencil and work the numbers a little better. Working with honesty and integrity. One of the toughest places at all is in hiring and firing. remember the first time in my ministry that I had an employee that was underperforming. I went to one of the leaders of our church and said, give me some guidance on how to, how to work with this. He said, well, Bob, the first thing you do is be sure that you avoid trying to be manipulative. Sit down with her and have an honest conversation. And I did. And that led to a process whereby she got into a job that was much better for her gifts and abilities. It put us at a disadvantage in replacing her. But she, for years and years and years, was a productive and important part of our church. And I never regretted that I tried to treat her in a way that I would want to be treated. Went to one of the leaders also of one of our, uh, the member of our personnel committee in the years that I pastored in town. And I remember one time telling me this, this about our staff. He said, Bob, our job with our staff is not to get the most out of them that we can right now, or even to meet all of our goals this year. Our job is to steward their fruitfulness over a lifetime of work. And that may mean we lose them to a better opportunity. So be it. And it may mean we help them find a better job that fits them better than the one they have here because we're stewarding them for a lifetime. That's a different way, but it's important. You know, sometimes this law of love doesn't have anything to do with authority. Let me give you a couple of examples of that. In his book uh, by Jeff Van Duzer, Jeff Van Duzer talks about the example of Shirley. Shirley worked for service master. And in her job for 15 years, she worked doing the dirtiest jobs you can imagine in a 250-bed community hospital. And she was known for doing the work diligently and with joy and without complaint. Why did she do it? She bought into the mission of the hospital. And she saw herself as an integral part of the team that was bringing healing to sick people. She wasn't a doctor. She wasn't a nurse. She was mopping floors and cleaning toilets. But her attitude was, these people count, and my work counts. And she served people with an attitude of love. Here in our church, the man who's been in charge of our mailroom and workroom for at least 10 years is John Stedham. And John Stedham does not have, and he has not had here, a position of authority. But he's one of the most greatly respected people in our church staff. Why? Because he carries himself every day in the love of Jesus. He oozes the spirit of Jesus in what he does. And when he comes in touch with you, you will feel respected and loved and honored. And he goes about his business 
smelling like the Spirit of God. And I can't tell you the number of times I left our mail room saying, Lord, I need to be more like John Stedham. Let me give you, finally give you two sort of holistic examples. One is the example of Don Flo of Flo Automotive. He owns a group of automobile dealerships in North Carolina and in Virginia. And the stated mission purpose of his car dealerships, and let me back up to say in, in 2007, they had over $650 million of sales and had about 900 employees at that time. And the, the stated purpose of their car dealerships is to enhance human flourishing and to promote shalom. Now, that is different for a car dealership, in my opinion. Haven't been to too many that that's the way they talk about selling cars. But Don Flo puts it this way. He says, wealth and profits, profits are never a first thing. They are always a second thing. They are like life and they are like blood in our bodies, rather. We can't live without that blood, but no one would say, I live for my blood. So in the same way, the purpose of your work and the purpose of your company and organization is not just to make profits. You have to make profits to stay alive. But Don Flo would say that the purpose of his company is much bigger than making money. Flo Automotive is an oddly godly business. <laughs> Let me give you a few examples. They don't market cars as status symbols. They refuse to do that. They see it as manipulative. When you go to the showroom of one of their, their uh, stores, they supply customers with computer kiosks where their customers can go online for pricing information. That's pretty radical. In most of their locations, they don't deal with that whole negotiating thing to get the price of the car. Why don't they do that? Because they believe that that puts at a disadvantage vulnerable people who don't know how to play that game. And so they use a fixed pricing model for their automobiles. That's different. But in all that they do, they always take this as the measurement of whether or not they're acting in love. Are we doing unto others as we would want them to do unto us? Would I want to change places with this customer, with this employee, with this vendor, with this manager? I want to treat them like I want to be treated. The last example I'll give you of this is the example of my own wife. And I threw this into the sermon without her permission because I knew she'd say no. And I wanted to talk about her anyway. For as long as we've been married, which is almost 30 years now, I've seen her every summer teach kids to swim. It's a business she learned from her mom. And she has taught hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of kids how to swim. And I've seen her every summer treat every child as a little image bearer of God and to treat them with love and honor and dignity and respect. And I've seen her have such patience, love, loving patience, firm patience. She is in control. But I've seen her be so patient with kids that I would have wanted to throw into the deep end of the pool and forget about, you know? Now, don't write me emails or letters. I wouldn't really do that. I'm, I'm not a, a child killer. But I've seen her love kids that I would have had no patience for. And she really does love them. She does her work with excellence. I can't count the number of times that someone has said to me, Bob, Margaret Ann is a miracle worker. I thought my child would never swim. Your wife is amazing in knowing how to teach. And she really is. And I've seen her conduct and carry out her business with generosity. Every summer she is asking herself, what family needs these lessons for free? And what family needs these lessons for half price? 
Gets me choked up just to think about her giving away all those free lessons. I'll tell you what. She does it because she can't have a business and not have a generous side of that business. The reality is this, my friends, that extra income does help our family, but she doesn't do it for the money. She does it to prevent the brokenness, the broken world experience of somebody's child drowning. And every time she hears in the news that somebody is drowned, an adult or a child, either one, it breaks her heart. She teaches swimming to repair what is broken and to prevent brokenness. And secondly, she teaches swimming so that kids and families can enjoy this beautiful, wonderful, amazing thing that God invented that we call water. What is work? It's healing and preventing brokenness and it's celebrating beauty. And that's what a swim lesson is. It's preventing brokenness. It's celebrating beauty. What is a swimming lesson? A swimming lesson is a way of loving people by redemptively using a thing called water. It's more than a swimming lesson. It's being a redeemed image bearer. And she does her job great. The only thing I've never been able to understand is that she's never wanted to drive a jet ski. I just don't get that. I don't think there's any more fun way to be out on the water than on a jet ski. In fact, I was preparing the message. I thought to myself, if there are not jet skis in the new heavens and the new earth, I'll be disappointed. And then I realized, maybe I can be a jet ski without the jet ski, you know? Maybe I can barefoot without a boat in the new heavens and the new earth. I don't know. It brings the movie Hancock to mind. Maybe we'll all be like him in what we can do. I don't know. But I do know this. I respect the way my wife runs her business because it smells like the loving law of God and it smells like the gospel. Just two thoughts as we end this message. Just two thoughts. The first one you'll see on the screen. Christ-centered beliefs and faith regarding our work produce spirit-empowered attitudes and actions in our work. Don't go to work without being filled with the Holy Spirit. And it's putting your faith in Jesus that produces the fullness of the Holy Spirit. It is believing in this whole larger story. You need the root system. You need to believe it with all of your heart because it will unleash the Spirit's power in what you're doing every day. And you need the Spirit's power every day. And the truth of the matter is you and I, neither one, will obey God's law perfectly in any day of our work. So we need the forgiveness of the cross every day in our work. And we need the power of the cross every day in our work. We have to have it if we're going to work as God has called us to work. The last thing I would say in conclusion is this. Don't forget this, that you, yes, you are God's biggest project of restoration in your job. (laughs) We talked a lot about how God's going to use you to restore other things and other people, but you're God's biggest project right there. What I mean is God is using your job as a crucible to shape you into the image of Christ. Yes, this amazing, wonderful, boring, irritating job is what God has put you in to make you more like Jesus. And yes, you're a participant in the story of restoration. And you're a messenger about the story of restoration. But in a foundational way, you are a recipient of God's restoration. That means this. 
the most important thing you can do when you go to work is go to work smelling like Jesus. Go to work smelling like love and joy and peace and patience and goodness and kindness and faithfulness and gentleness and self-control. And when you go to work smelling like Jesus, Jesus shows up and Jesus starts changing things. The truth of the matter is this. Jesus is the one who's restoring all things. We are just his little helpers. He gets all the glory. Let's pray as we close. Lord, we do thank you that you're the one who has given us these amazing callings of work. And Lord, we amazed that we represent you in what we do. Show us how to represent you and how we do it. Thank you. You've come to restore all things, even us. Lead us as we try to be agents of restoration. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. You've been listening to the Perimeter Church Podcast. Perimeter Church is located at the corner of Highway 141 and Old Alabama Road in Johns Creek, Georgia. Please visit our website at www.perimeter.org for more information, to give us your feedback, and find other messages from our teaching team. Thanks for making this podcast a part of your day.